What's up, Spellslingers? My name is Gary and John Wells, and this is another episode of Untap, Upkeep, Drink, the decidedly casual Magic the Gathering podcast where we talk all things magic while reviewing a couple tasty brews. As always, to my left, I've got Corey Janabagian, and to my right, I've got Drew Flinton. How's it going, boys? So good, Gary. Nice, Gary. I'm doing well, and today we're talking about building an EDH deck. So first, we're going to talk about how to build the deck, what goes into it, and what you actually want as far as the spread of cards. And then we're going to talk about a specific deck, one of Gary Ann's brews. Spicy brew. And today, we're busting out some new stuff. For me, I've got the Samuel Smith's Nut Brown Ale. This is an English Nut Brown, imported, special for us. It's got the gold foil top, nice and fancy. That's how you know it's good. It looks like a little bottle of champagne. All right, so this is a 5% ABV. It's got a very nice dark color to it. It's got a bit of a, a roasted chocolate kind of vibe to it. It's very sweet. Uh, definitely going to enjoy this one. It definitely wasn't as heavy as other brown ales. No, it definitely feels a, a little bit lighter. Yeah. So, and Gary, for you, I've got a nice Hefeweizen. Paul, Paul, Paul Anner Munchen Hefeweizen, natural wheat. <laughs> it's got a nice rocky pebbled head. It's a nice German beer. It's going to be a, a little bit more fermenty kind of than what you're probably used to. Yeah, I was going to say it's not a nice fresh wheat beer like what you would get from no, an this American is a Muni- wheat beer. Th- yes, this <clears> is an, a Munich Hef. That's good though. It's, you know, like you said, it's got that fermented kind of... Very yeasty. Fungal kind of... Not not fungus per se, but like... Yeasty. Old, Oh yeasty. yeah, it's, it's very, very strong. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, nice with a, a little bit of citrus on it. A little bit of orange in it and we... Just right up your alley. And Corey, unfortunately for you, I couldn't find a bottle, but I got you a can. Ooh. Today we're rocking the Deschutes Fresh Haze IPA. Let me read the profile real quick. A hazy twist on your main squeeze. This juice bomb explodes with notes of orange citrus sweetness and a soft malt body. So with this one, I went with the hazy IPA because they're not as as strong as far as the hop flavor goes. They don't kick you in the teeth as much. And so it should be a lot easier drinking. So... Let's dip right in. Well, I don't think any of us are really IPA fans, but this one's actually really good. It's, I think it said 45 on the IBUs. 45? That's yeah, really so light. It's, it's not bitter at all, and you can definitely taste all the orange. Yeah, the, the citrus orange zest or whatever they put in there really comes through nicely. That's absolutely the best IPA I've ever had. In yeah, my this life. one is I'm not an IPA fan, but that is good. This is definitely one of the better ones. What's the alcohol percentage on that? Super bitter, six point five. So not as strong as some IPAs. It's certainly not a double or a triple, but no. But it's a lot easier to drink than any of those. So today we're going to be talking about building an EDH deck, of course. And I mean, really, the first thing you got to do is decide who your commander is. Step one. Some people decide what they want to do and build and find a commander based on that. But I found that. For me, I find a commander that's interesting and go, that's where I'm going. Let's build around that. H- how do you guys usually figure out your deck? What What's the start starting process for that? It kind of depends on what I want to do and what my last deck was all about. Because sometimes I'll go from one deck that I started with the commander and I need to tr- transition to a theme or something like that. But I've got three here that I've picked out that I think kind of exemplifies how I pick decks. So the first one I've got is an elf deck, and I built the deck around just having as many mana dorks as I could fit in it. So these are just one ones that tap for one green. 
And so I needed a way, besides Crater Hoof Behemoth, because I was trying to build a deck that was under $80 for this deck, and all of the mana dorks, you know, are, are fairly cheap. And so I wanted to get that uh, massive amount of mana and then finish out a game super quick with it. And so, aside from Crater Hoof, uh, there wasn't that many, many ways. So instead, I found Azuri Renegade Leader. So Azuri, legendary creature, elf warrior. He is one green green, and he has two activated abilities. The first one is tap a green and regenerate another target elf. So this is great in the deck because if every elf basically taps for mana itself, then it can protect itself as soon as Izuri's out. The other one is that it's got two green, 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 so that's five mana for elf creatures you control, get plus three, plus three, and gain trample until end of turn. So if I have a way to generate just a bunch of mana, then all of my little elves become significantly larger, and then they become legitimate threats on the board, but that's uh, four fours, seven sevens, but they have trample, they're getting in, and so the idea is generate a bunch of mana, swing with the whole team, kill everybody. He might be the best elf commander, especially if you're going wide. Yeah, so that's definitely a strategy on that one. So the next one was that I found Marchesa the Black Rose from the 2017 Commander decks. And so she reads uh, one blue, black, red. She has dethrone, whatever this creature attacks player with the most life or tied with the most life, put a plus one, plus one counter on her. And she has other creatures you control have dethrone. So the same text. She also has whenever a creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it dies, return that card to the battlefield under your control at the beginning of the next step step. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to take other people's creatures, steal them, and put plus one, plus one counters on them. Then I wanted to sacrifice them and steal their creatures basically permanently once that effect happens. So that's the idea is that I want it to be thematic around plus one, plus one counters and sacrificing other people's stuff. The third one that I built around was because I found Okagachi, uh, Vengeful Spirit, and I wanted to build a Vorthosi kind of thematic deck around the Kamigawa block. And I just wanted to put all of the spirits from Kamigawa into one deck, and this is the way I could do it. So those decks kind of show the way that I've started building decks and the way that I choose the commanders for them. Sometimes it's commander down, sometimes it's deck building up to the commander. Corey, you've had some some decks that are rather interesting, and you've kind of had one that you've transformed over the years. Um, but first, you've got the one that we always call One Punch Man. Yeah, so it was the second deck I made uh, with Shu Yun, Silent Tempest, who's One Punch Man, basically. He's a legendary creature human monk for two and a blue with prowess, which is whenever you cast a non-creature spell, this creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And then whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you can pay two Boros mana, so red, white, red, white. If you do, target creature gains double strike until end of turn. So the idea is basically to play as many um, non-creature spells in a turn and then give him double strike and a blockable and then swing in for lethal. You just have to get him to 11, and then you can kill anybody. And usually when I make a deck, I look for something that I haven't made before or something that's unique to our playgroup. As far as mechanics or as, just as far as a card? As, as far as mechanics go, because I think of the deck overall. Okay. And this was fairly early in our EDH uh, experience, and none of us, I think all of us had one deck maybe a couple in the works and none of us had a Voltron deck. And so I decided to make this a pseudo Voltron deck because it is, it doesn't actually have equipment or anything like that. It's all just can trips and one drop pump spells and unblockable spells to try and get those prowess triggers up to just swing in for lethal. And it was definitely one of those just kill you out of nowhere. 
as soon as you had the cards to do so. Yeah, it was also very budgety and didn't work very well. I could usually kill one person and then I ran out of steam and yeah. then just sat there. <laughs> so was it trying to hold cards in your hands so you could play them all in sequential order? There were a lot of the... We should describe cantrips. So cantrips are cards that when you play it, it has the text that it'll draw you a card. Or you have something else that causes oh, okay. you that when you play an instant sorcery, enchantment, whatever, it causes you to draw a card. So the idea behind it was that you would cantrip out and play as many of those cards as you can, and you get those prowess triggers, drawing back the cards that you've played so that you're always uh, net zero on the cards that you play that so sense. that you can just swing in. And that's what I meant. Because kind of you just come out of nowhere with that deck. And having played against it, I kind of agree that I don't know if it was ever a consistent winner, but it would consistently kill one person. Yeah, I could secure third place at the very least. <laughs> In our four-player games, third place Not was the worst. <laughs> he could always say, well, this player's dead, but who do I want to not win? Yeah, I could politic really hard with it because I could kill who's ever winning, obviously, or I could just take the loser out and then True, become the yeah. next loser. Yeah, it was definitely a scary deck to, to look at. He also had another one that was kind of scary to play against in the sense that we had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, speaking of inconsistencies, <laughs> I also had a Norn the Wary Chaos deck. So what do you mean by chaos? Chaos, I added as many random cards, or cards that did random effects, shuffled things around. Yeah, when you say random, you don't necessarily mean... Just I pulled them out. No, cards, yeah. they... Like Warp, Warp World, which... You shuffle all permanent. Everyone shuffles all permanents that they own into their decks, and then you flip up the top the number of cards that you shuffled into your deck, and then everyone gets those cards. Yeah, so and cards then, that randomized what people had. You had fuck. What's that one that you? Um, so the all star of the deck was confusion in the ranks, which is whenever a creature, an enchantment, or an artifact entered the battlefield, you had to switch it with something. Yeah, so I everyone played, had to switch it. So at the time, I played a very heavy enchantment-based deck. So whenever I played that deck against Norn, it was very frustrating because I had to know that I needed to play two enchantments in a turn because I would trade with somebody and then I needed to play the second one just so I could get the one that I wanted, which was the first one I played, back. So that's the kind of thinking that was required for Norn. Yeah, it was it was hard to pl plan around and hard to play against because sometimes it did nothing and you just switched things around and everyone just killed you. And other times you... Got More everything. out of annoyance than out of like you being a genuine threat, right? They wanted to just play exactly, their deck. Yeah. Because with Norn the Wary, he with Norn the Wary out, he leaves whenever anybody casts a spell, or he gets exiled whenever anybody casts a spell or attacks. And so you basically had a creature entering the battlefield every turn, so you can steal every creature, and he returns under your control. And so people couldn't play creatures, or else I would just steal them, and then. And then you still and, get Norin back. Yeah, and then if you played an enchantment, even if you switch with Confusion in the Ranks, as long as it's on the battlefield, everyone still has a switch. And so everyone was just switching permanents all over the place, and nobody liked it. Yeah, and the other thing with Norn is that Norn's a one-drop, which I think is a very important thing in a deck like that, and just in a lot of decks, is that you want to keep your mana cost as low as you can, that is feasibly as low as you can, because some decks you build around the commander, and the commander is what it is. Yeah, one of the big problems was, since it was mono-red... There's very little ramp, except for artifacts, but if you're throwing your artifacts away, it doesn't help you at all. There's very little card draw, so once you run out of steam, you're just you're sitting down. there, you're top decking. That being said, you kind of developed Norn into a way that started to win, and that is by completely changing what the deck wanted to do. Yeah, so 
after a few frustrating games where you either got Perforos and you won or else you didn't do anything and you blew up some lands. I got sick of it and so I decided to tear it apart and make it into a new deck. And I still, I, I love mono red and so I wanted to keep it mono red, but I decided to go with a tribal deck. A bigger, better commander. A much better in every way tribal Insane. deck. Yeah, this deck wins consistently and quickly. Yeah, so I decided to go Goblin Tribal using Cranko Mob Boss, the one and only, as the commander. Cranko reads, he's two red red for legendary creature Goblin Warrior, 3-3. Three, three. You tap it, create X-1-1 one, one red Goblin creature tokens, where X is the number of goblins you control. So, because Cranko is in fact a goblin... You're always going to have value off of Cranko. Yes, you at least get one when you play him. So he he sort of starts the deck at the very least on his own. You don't need any other goblins besides him. But that being said, you always want as many goblins as possible. So I took all of the chaos cards out. I left a couple of the damage board wipes, um, a lot of the artifacts just for ramp. I added a lot more red card draw. Just souped it up in all all aspects. I kept Perforos, of course, because he's just a gangster. And then I just added as many goblins as I could, basically. And the key with Cranko is that he's a four drop, and so you want to fill your one, two, and three slots as with as many goblins as you can. Because if you can play a goblin on each of your turns until you get Cranko, then that's at least four goblins out. So you can make four with him. Yeah, it gets out of hand very quickly. Now, when we start getting into the nuts and bolts of deck building, we start talking about very specific areas that need improvement. So going from Norn to Cranko, you were basically making a more efficient deck. And some of the main areas that we have to address are card draw, ramp, removal, and board wipes. Yeah, those are... What do we mean by that? Those are your four, like, primary categories that I would want to focus on for building an EDH deck. So first we have ramp... Uh, or mana acceleration, however you want to call it. You need about 8 to 10 of those, uh, or 8 to 10% if you're looking at a Brawl deck or Tiny Leaders or one of those other smaller formats. Don't look at those. <laughs> uh, so to give a definition, ramp is when you have access to more mana than you would normally have for your turn based solely on the land drops that you would have for those turns. Because so, you can only play one land per turn as per the rules this, of magic. This is the first rule of magic that you learn. <laughs> yeah. So if you have... A soul ring, it's kind of the, the go-to example, is that if you play soul ring on turn one, then on turn two, you would have access to four mana, including your land drops. So you have ramped if you've played the soul ring. You essentially uh, go two turns forward yeah. with ramp. So that's that's exactly what, what you want, is that the difference between going from like three mana to five mana is massive. Going from eight to ten, not so much. So you kind of want these ramp spells to be played as early as you can, because the longer you wait, the less effective they're going to be. So a lot of your powerful spells really kind of start to affect the board at about four, five, and above. So you want to get there as fast as possible, and ramp enables you to do so. This is why green is very, very strong, because Absolutely. it has access to all of the land ramp, and land ramp is a lot stronger than artifact ramp, because it's a lot harder to get rid of. Yeah, most play groups kind of frown upon land destruction, which our group kind of leans away from for the most part. We do have some in some decks, but a lot of playgroups don't like land destruction because it just stops you from being able to play the game. Um, so the next category that we're going to hit on is card draw. You want about the same amount as you want your ramp. You want about 8 to 10 or more. Uh, it's exactly as it says. Yeah, it is card draw. You draw need to give yourself <laughs> yes. 
In Commander, you need to give yourself access to cards after you've played out your hand. Obviously, that makes sense. But you have to remember that you're competing against three other people in a four-player game. So realistically, you're always at card disadvantage if you're only drawing one card per turn cycle. The other people are drawing one each. So that's three cards for your one. So you always need to be able to think how you're going to be able to get more cards compared to everyone you're playing against. And part of that 21 is going to be your lands. So you have to be able to get through your lands, get through your other spells that aren't effective immediately because you want your deck to be as varied as possible and be able to compete with a wide range of things. Um, so, Cora, you've got kind of the quote here for why card draw is so important. Yeah, so if you have the mana to play everything but nothing to play, then it's almost as bad as not having the mana. So if you only have ramp and no gas and you just top deck then you're just sitting there with lots of mana and nothing to do. That's why card draw is equally important, just like lands. Yeah, because you want to be able to to ramp into large spells, but you also need to be able to top deck stuff that you can play. So having that card draw to get yourself into a way that you're going to have consistent card draw is super beneficial in your deck. And luckily with the, the EDH format, you always have at least one card that you can play, and that's your commander. So long as you haven't already played them. Yeah, so long as they're not already there. <laughs> so another thing to think about in a game like EDH is that there is a political game that is at play as well, and that is that whenever you have cards in hand, there's always something that you could potentially do. Even if it's just lands in hand, if you just draw three cards, that's saying I have potential answers to your threats, and I can make a deal with you regardless of whether or not you know what I have. Yeah, a lot of times just the threat can be enough to maneuver your way through a turn or two. Yeah, and when you've already played out your hand, everyone knows what you already can do, and that is exactly what's on the board. So having those lands in hand, having just anything in hand helps you in that political game. You can sway it both in your favor and against somebody else. So if you have no cards in hand, then you say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm that's not the threat. I don't have any answers, like... This is all I have. But if somebody's sitting over there with seven cards in hand, you're like, yo, this guy, he's got all the good stuff. Let's go after him. Yeah. And speaking of answers, you need to have them. So we've got target and spot removal, which for me, I always include counter spells because you are answering cards one for one. And that's what I mean by spot removal is that you are trading one card for one card. You need to get rid of a single threat. Now, again, this is a multiplayer game. So once you get rid of someone's threat, you have to think that you're minus one and so is the person whose spell you've countered or threat you've destroyed. So the other players that you're playing with are still going to be card neutral. And that's not always a good thing for you because you're a card down on that. Well, I always like to play the political game, as you guys both know. And so whenever I take, the, take one for the team and remove something that's threatening the whole board, I always say, hey, Drew, Gary, and remember this. I helped you I'm, out, buddy. I'm down a card. And for the most part, people are going to be okay with that. People are going to say, you know what? I can't take care of this, so I'll give you a yeah, turn. Yeah, uh, table talk is very important. Yeah. Like, does anybody have any answers? So while this is an integral part of the game, what you need to remember is that your removal spells need to be flexible. You can't just always have creature killing cards. This is why white and black removal is really, really strong because it usually exiles and it targets permanence. Like Anguish and Making... Whatever you need gone, it's gone. So yeah, when you're looking at removal, you try and be flexible. However, sometimes you need to clear the board. Hell yeah. Especially when you're playing Cranko. Yeah, Cranko. Fuck that guy. Sometimes you got to blow all the lands up. <laughs> we don't, Even when you're playing Cranko. We don't need to do that. <laughs> so just like removal, you need about three to five 
board wipes, and you need to have them be flexible once again. You don't just want to destroy creatures all the time. Granted, sometimes you do want to destroy creatures, but you also need to be able to deal with artifacts, enchantments, sometimes trouble lands, as much yeah. as I hate it. Uh, but the difference is, is that you're trading one card to clear away all of the threats of that specific type on the board. So board wipes can include things like Cyclonic Rift, which is just an insanely powerful card because it gets rid of all permanence of your opponents. And that's something that can't really be understated just because it opens up the door to you and it just forces your opponents to have to replay their stuff and to invest in making their board state what it was. Yeah, it gets you so far ahead and sets them so far back. And usually board wipes, they level the playing field, but things like Cyclonic Rift, they just put you ahead and everybody else behind. And then another thing that uh, board wipes do is they get around Hexproof and Shroud. So even if your removal isn't uh, doing what you wanted to do and targeting the answers that you need targeted, a board wipe fixes everything. Yeah, so when someone has like a really problematic commander or something like that that their entire deck is built around, they're going to have a way to protect it. And so having an answer to get around that protection is very important. And sometimes, and I know this from personal experience, is that you don't want to just kill one thing, but you need to at least kill that one thing or get rid of it in some way. And so just not being able to target it kind of screws up all of your removal, but being able to swipe the board, even if it kind of puts you down a little bit, is way better than letting that thing get out of hand. Yeah, board wipes, they're, I wouldn't say a last resort, but they answer almost everything. And there are very few board wipes that actually answer everything. Cyclonic Rift is one of those, but there's board wipes that answer every category that you need. So that's why you need to run multiple ones. All right. Our last kind of major category here is the lands. You need about 35 to 40. And the reason is, is because you need to be able to play the spells that you put in your deck. You have these nice, shiny new spells that you've built in this new deck. How are you going to play them without the lands? Your land base might be the most important thing you can uh, work on and improve over time. And it becomes significantly more important the more colors your deck has. Because you can't just have basic lands at that point. Because if you draw into a swamp and you need a plains you're screwed. You have land, but you don't have the right land. So now you are talking about these big decks with 100 cards and multiple colors. You have to have not only mana, but mana fixing so that your deck can always perform at optimum efficiency. Yeah, so you need like your dual lands, you know, the the shock lands or the... There's tri lands, check lands, bounce lands, pain lands. Anything that gets you your colors and lets you play your spells is worth running. Yeah, and of course, you can always have your fetch lands, and the most basic of which, we've got Terramorphic Expanse, and we've got Evolving Wild, and those allow you to get whatever color you need at that time. And uh, the other thing that's associated with that is when you just have utility lands. So utility lands are going to give you some bonus effect, but they're just the problem is that you have some mana costs that are associated with that effect, and also they rarely tap for colored mana. So they usually tap for diamond mana, which is your actual colorless mana, and I don't like to count them as a full land in my decks. I usually count them as like a half land uh, or just as an actual spell, depending on what their effect is. Um, but when you're building a monocolor deck, because all of your lands are going to tap for the same color, you can kind of fit in more of these utility lands in there just because you only need one color and the rest of your mana cost is going to be colorless. So you want to be able to kind of have alternate effects that your color generally wouldn't be able to produce. 
Yeah, and a couple examples are like your reliquary towers, your arcane lighthouses, your Rogue guy's passage. cradle, rogue's passage. Rogue's passage is a very good example. You can tap a tad, uh, colorless to your mana pool, or you can tap four and it, so that's five lands that you're going to have to tap for this effect to make one of your creatures unblockable. So that's just a very good example of what a utility land can be. If you're just counting the lands, you've got about 35 to 40 of them. That only leaves about 60 to 65 real cards for you to play around with. And within that, you have to have your deck's strategy. So when you're looking at real cards in your deck, what your deck strategy wants to do, you want about 25 to 30 real cards for your deck strategy. So this is really what your deck wants to do. So if you're running a tribal deck, you have 25 to 30 cards of the specific tribe and cards that synergize well with them. Um, if it's a Voltron deck, you want like 20, 25, 30 auras, equipment, things that suit up your Voltron commander or just a creature in there so you can go big and also have cards that help to protect that creature. So... All of these numbers are kind of variant on what your deck wants to do and who your commander is. Yeah, if you're a creature-heavy deck, then you want to stack up your deck with creatures that do all of these things, like Mole Drifter draws you cards, Rexage is removal, all these things that synergize with your commander. And if you don't have creatures, or if you're, if you're not a creature-heavy deck, then you want to run other draw spells or removal spells. Yeah, if you want like a creature-heavy deck, then you kind of need creatures with ETB effects that have utility that you wouldn't otherwise have unless you had a bunch of instant sorceries, counterspells to remove creatures or, or whatever that you can't normally deal with personally. But when you're looking for these utility cards, there's specific cards that seem to fit colors nicely no matter what. Whether you're talking about this synergy or that synergy, tribal or Voltron, it yeah, doesn't it, really matter. It works well with this color or commander decks in general just because of what they provide for that deck. Yeah, these are certain removal spells, board wipes, card draw, just depending on which color you're running. Yeah, these are kind of like the highlights of the color wheel uh, and also colorless. So in colorless, we've got Soul Ring, obviously, Lightning Greaves, since we have foot boots, they protect your commander and anything else that you want to protect. You've got the Signets because you need ramp and it goes in whatever deck of what, whatever color pairing plus that you have. Uh, you've got Command Tower because it's always going to tap for whatever color you need. And Vidalcan Ori, because that card is just insane and it gives everything flash. It's just too Brilliant. good in any deck. <laughs> it's a little expensive, obviously, but it's going to be amazing. Some of the highlights of white include the Wrath of God and all of the other Wrath, wrath effects. Return to Dust, Path to Exile, Swords of Plowshares. Yeah, white is very good at removal. Yeah. In blue, we've got Cyclonic Rift, Mole Drifter, Expropriate, which is an extra turns type card. We've got Cryptic Command and Rhystic Study for your card draw and counterspell needs. For Black, you've got things like Toxic Deluge, Damnation, huge fan, Phyrexian Arena, Urborg Tomb of Yagmoth, Which pairs well with Cabal Coffers. Of course. Things like Demonic Tutor and all their Tutor derivatives. And then for Mono Red, you've got your Chaos Warps, your Blasphemous Axe, your Vandal Blast, Blood Moon, Insurrection. Yeah, so Green, very good at very specific things like Kodama's Reach, right? You want your ramp. You've got Eternal Witness. Harmonize, which is your classic green draw spell. Beast Within is your classic just removal general. And you got Crocean Grip, which has the split second effect where you can cast it before like having any effect resolve. Yes. It'll resolve first. Split second is one of those things that they don't print anymore because it is very, very powerful. All right. We've gone through what you need in an EDH deck. We've gone through some examples of what the colors can do. We're almost finished with these beers. Yeah, we're pretty close here. Corey, you, as always, just the champion of the people. I'm, a, I'm just a thirsty boy. <laughs> So how was that hazy IPA? Did this I do hazy well? IPA was excellent. I really enjoyed it. Like I said before, none of us are really IPA guys, but this one 
I could easily drink a lot more of these. It's It was very citrusy and smooth. Usually IPAs, they're very bitter. And so they're hard to drink, at least for me. But this one, it was nice and crisp and refreshing. And it went down very easily. I would easily drink another one. Big fan. Yeah, definitely sounds like a good beer. And Deschutes is one of my favorite breweries. So I'm, I didn't think I'd be disappointed. Yeah, that's fair. For me, I've got that Samuel Smith Nut Brown Ale, and not quite finished with her here, but she's been a delightful beer. I really like dark beers personally, and Nut Brown Ales are something that I'm always trying to find a good, like, specific one that I can just always have, and this one might be there. It's really close. It's just a classic English brown ale, but kind of has that that nutty taste to it. Very rich malt flavor. Really enjoyable overall. Yeah, and this weird, stanky Hefeweizen that I've got, this Pauliner, <laughs> honestly, at first, it was almost a little too much because it was so different than most so, wheat Hefeweizens. What you have to remember is that this is a Munich right. Hefeweizen, which means that it is going to be a little more yeasty, a little more fermented, and it's gonna, it's gonna, those flavors are really going to be drawn out more. But four or five sips in, it kind of mellowed out. It felt a little better on my mouth, and now I really, really like it. It's got a lot of flavor, which... Sometimes the wheat beers don't. They're a little weak. Uh, and this one does not disappoint. This one's real flavorful. It's really fresh. And it's a very full-bodied beer still. Full-bodied. It's still a good wheat beer, just a little more funky. So because we're talking about deck brewing, I decided to bring in a recent deck that I just put together um, and use sort of the evolution of that deck as an example of all of these things that we've talked about and why they're so important. Because when I started this deck, I picked a commander who I thought was pretty unique. His name is the Mimeoplasm. He's a legendary creature, Ooze. He's a 0-0 for two black, green, blue. And it says, as the Mimeoplasm enters the battlefield, you may exile two creature cards from graveyards. If you do, it enters the battlefield as a copy of one of those cards with a number of additional plus one, plus one counters on it, equal to the power of the other card. So when I started out, I knew that Graveyard, in general, was going to be part of the theme of this deck build, which ultimately led me to deciding to swap my commander for another Sultai commander. Um, I decided to go with Muldrotha instead and put the Mimeoplasm in the 99, uh, just because I felt like what I wanted to do out of the deck was bring things back from the graveyard. That's very specific to what the playstyle I wanted to do. So I wanted to make it as consistent as possible, always having a commander that allowed me to play cards from the graveyard. So I started sort of adding in cards from my personal collection, which are pretty old cards, not as efficient as I'd like them to be, but I found a lot of sort of recursion cards that would bring things from my graveyard to my hand. A lot of things that had sacrifice abilities that could toss things into the graveyard. Now, I tossed all this stuff together and I went out to play with the friends because, you know, what else are you going to do? You got to yeah, play with you, it. You got to see what's going on. Once you make a deck, you need to be able to play test it. And yeah. the best way to do that is just to go to people that you've played with consistently, people that, you know, are going to be real with you and you say, hey, is this deck good? What should I change? And it just happens to be that everybody in my play group has far more experienced a commander than me, which is a good thing for my deck building because I can get a lot of advice. Um, the first piece of advice obviously came from none other than Drew here 
which was basically, why are you taking out these powerful creatures and then intentionally sacrificing them just so that you can use a graveyard recursion thing that doesn't make any sense? So I wasn't using enter the battlefield effects. I wasn't using any of this sacrifice theme that would actually be beneficial. It was literally hindering me by taking powerful creatures and killing them so that I could say, hey, I brought him back, yeah, which does no good. When when Game first brought the deck and we played it, it took a lot of mana just for him to play these creatures, and then he would just sacrifice them so that he could bring them back. And not all of them had ETB effects, not all of them were even worth being in the deck, in my opinion. And, and it was slow. It was going from the graveyard to my hand, not to the battlefield, so I'd have to wait another turn, play them, summoning... Six, I mean, I was putting myself back and back and back with these mechanics that I was trying to use. Right. And so to make up for that, your initial deck had a ton of ramp in it. You had 16 different ramp spells in it just to make up for the fact that you needed to be able to cast these giant creatures. But it kind of did some of the things that you wanted to do and you kind of found the things that you enjoyed out of the deck and we kind of tried to focus down on those things. Another problem that I found with it was that you did not have enough lands for the giant fatties you were trying to play. You had 33 lands, and that was just not enough, even with all of the ramp spells you had. One of the things that we talked about before in like our essentials part is that you can't skimp on the lands. Don't cut the lands for other you know, nice, shiny spells. You need to have a land base that supports your creatures and your spells. And you also had a lot of these utility lands that didn't do anything to help your deck that just were there because there were cool effects and you had the cards and that seems to be right, they were already in my collection so I tossed them in and that seemed to be kind of the the theme of the deck more than actual graveyard shenanigans was I have these cards black and I cards like them. that I have yeah yeah so one of the things that I really wanted to look at is just what we had around immediately to try and like spruce up the deck and try and fix some places that it was a little weak so one of the things you had is a four drop artifact and enchantment removal that gained you life or something along those lines and we had a naturalized sitting around. So just like trying to cut the mana cost down immediately for the spells that are relevant when you need them rather than trying to wait till you get to four, five, six. Because even though you have all that ramp, once you cast a giant creature, you know, you don't really have the, the mana to make up for it afterwards. Um, another thing is like we cut Sky Shroud Gleam for Explosive Vegetation just because instead of trying to find four, it allows you to get any color that you want, any color that you need. And Sky Shroud Gleam only looks at forest. And since you didn't have those OG dual lands, the specific lands that allow you to fetch these forests bummer the shocks yeah it, it yeah. didn't help you out um the other thing that we wanted to look at was just how your deck actually wanted to win and there was a difference between how your deck wanted to win and how you wanted to win personally and that kind of is where we started to focus down on the deck really hard to make the deck more synergistic and to produce results that were more consistent so we knew that you had some cards that were only there to fill the gap for the time being uh you'd ordered some cards and they were on the way to replace some of the less useful stuff that was just filler at that point um, so when we're looking at making a new deck and improving the new deck, sprucing it up, you have to cut cards. And that's kind of a hard thing to do because you have bought those cards or gotten them and it's kind of hard to just cut them unless you're doing so for a very specific card because it is just infinitely better. So you One of the hardest cuts for me to make was Dictate of Erebus because it's such a great card. It basically reads that anytime one of my creatures dies, all of my opponents have to sacrifice a creature, which in thought with a graveyard deck would be really great. But then when we started to narrow it down and realize I really didn't want my creatures to die, I wanted to mill myself into the graveyard and then bring them from the graveyard to the battlefield and hopefully keep them out there to do some work. Right, so you kind of have this buyer's remorse of just, I bought this card and I thought it would be really great in the deck. And it is a powerful card, but not in this situation. Right. Um, another thing is that 
when we were looking at cutting certain cards, you had this results-oriented thinking, which is very dangerous in magic in general. Just that the idea is that just because a card has been good in the past, it doesn't mean it's always going to be good in any situation. Um, it's not going to be consistently good. It's just it might have been good in one very specific situation, and you're just like, oh, this card's amazing because of that. But in reality, it's not as optimal as what another card would be. Even if card is a 10, you know, one out of 10 times, it's not as good as a card that is a six, 10 out of 10 times. Um, so we have to be objective when cutting cards. Yeah, you have to try and cover all your bases, make up for all the categories that we talked about, cover your land draw and your ramp while synergizing with everything else in your deck. Yeah. So in order to do all that, we needed to continue playtesting. And you and I did some playtesting with your brother. Granted, it wasn't as effective as what a four-player playtest session would have been, but we found some results regardless. Um, we found immediately that based on what you want to do with your deck, you didn't have enough self-mill, you didn't have enough ways to get stuff in your graveyard without actually having to have them on the battlefield to sacrifice in the first place. Um, we also found that your actual recursion was very difficult. You had two spells that were from the battle or from the graveyard to the battlefield. Other than that, you had a lot of just kind of regrowth style effects where they put it in your hand and you'd have to cast them again. Even then, that was kind of a... a small amount of cards in your deck. A vast majority of them were sorcery speed, not instant speed. Well, even beyond that, it was a lot of just non-bows with what your deck wanted to do because you had to have death triggers or something along those lines to make it work. Um, another thing you had was just your actual just card drawing spells. Like we said, it was with the self-mill. You just didn't have enough ways to get cards into your hand if you didn't have access to your graveyard. We, we stressed it before, and we, we'll say it again and again, but you need to be able to have cards in hand to be able to affect the board. The kind of one of the things that I thought to be interesting was that you had your spot removal. You had a fair amount of creature removal. I mean, you had five plus in there, uh, but you didn't have ways to deal with artifacts and champions aside from that one card we mentioned before. Uh, and I kind of suggested maybe you do some counter spells, some charms, but you just don't like counter spells. You don't really like control magic that much. So we kind of are going to pass on that. Part of my problem with counter spells is I have a really hard time evaluating what is the greatest threat. And I think it's not just that I have a hard time with it, but I also shoot myself in the foot and I start to feel like have a, you know, have that regret in the next turn when I shoot something down and then the bigger thing comes out. I'm like, fuck, that was the one. And I pulled my trigger too early. You know what I mean? That's one of the reasons why counter spells are extremely powerful at the time and then completely dead at other times. Because if you killed the thing that did, did nothing and something crazier comes out, then you just wasted your removal. Yeah, and, and when, that is a very hard thing to figure out when to counterspell. Yeah, counterspells in Commander is a very tricky subject just because the answer that you, or the threat that you've answered might have been the correct threat, but looking at it after something else is already resolved, it, you kind of have this frustration that, oh, I could have held it for that, but is that actually the correct decision, knowing that if you hadn't counterspelled that other thing, that thing would be coming at you anyways. So something that didn't come up terribly often when we were playing, I had it just once where I was able to kind of destroy your deck with it, was that you had no way to answer any grave hate. I had Bajukabog, emptied your graveyard, and you basically sat around for the next four turns until I killed you. Uh, that actually kind of brings me to a good point here because at the, at the time of shooting this episode, I have seven open slots. I finally went through the buyer's remorse, went through all the sadness, and I cut a few cards that I knew just were not going to work. This is after I've tuned it pretty well. But we've got seven slots, and I want you guys to kind of advise me on where you think I'm still weak, and we'll have the link to this deck list 
uh, you know, as of this episode, we'll have a link to the deck list so you guys can check out where we're at, where our thought process is of these 93 cards. But what is the most important thing to use those seven cards on? So for me personally, because in our play experience, Grave Hate was so punishing, you need to be able to protect against them. And you need to be able to do so at instant speed. Yes. Right. And so we've got on our list here, we've got Felden's Cane. So Felden's Cane is a one-drop artifact. You can tap it and exile it and shuffle your graveyard into your library. So you can do that at instant speed. It's a very powerful effect. Yeah, and it is a one-drop, so you do have access to that very early on. So you can just always have potential to protect yourself, protect your board. So another one-drop that's very powerful is Wand of Vertebrae. Uh, it reads that you can tap it, put the top card of your library into your graveyard. So this plays into the strategy of self-milling yourself. Um, and it has two, untap it, exile one of vertebrae, shuffle up to five cards, sorry, five target cards from your graveyard into your library. So again, another powerful effect. It gets the specific cards that you want and cycles them back Those in. The most important ones. So this kind of plays into two strategies. The problem, of course, with this card is that once you tap it to mill yourself, you are vulnerable to grave hate because you don't have the ability to tap it again. Um, in order to fix that, we could just use Perpetual Timepiece. So this card from Kaladesh, it costs two colorless. And as tap, put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard. So better self-mill already. And also you can pay two to exile Perpetual Timepiece, shuffle any number of target cards from your graveyard into your library. So this is just the essentials that you need. Maybe you don't want everything in there. Who knows? Maybe you just don't want the lands and you can leave them and let them get exiled. Whatever happens to be, it protects you. It is at instant speed. So again, this is going to be a great way to protect yourself. The last one I have on my list here is Elixir of Immortality. It doesn't help you with your self-mill, but it is a very powerful effect. So two and tap it, you gain five life. Shuffle Elixir of Immortality and your graveyard into its owner's library. So this is a way to, it's got a little bit of life gain. We don't really care about that, but it's a way to have a potentially recurring effect that you're able to use. It only costs one mana to bring it down on the battlefield. So if let's just say you were only going to add one of these graveyard saving perpetual time cards. Piece. Perpetual timepiece? Every time. Because it helps you with your self-mill, puts the top two in there, and at instant speed, you can protect whatever you need. Yeah, and sometimes it, you don't want to shuffle all of the lands that you've milled back in because it reduces your ability to get non-lands. Yeah. yeah, if you could just shuffle all your bombs back in and then get rid of all your lands that you don't want to draw at this stage in the game, then it's a very powerful card. So with seven card slots, do you feel like I need... As we talked about the potency and being able to consistently get to these cards, do you feel like I need more than one? I do, just because it'll be more consistent for you to be able to get there. And as it stands, either Felden's Cane or Elixir of Immortality are the two that I would look at second to Perpetual Timepiece. I agree. And then you can also just keep playtesting and say, I need more of these and then keep making cuts and put more protection in or this is too much protection. Like, I just keep drawing all of these and I only need one. In order to, like, guarantee the chance that you'll come across the cards, you just ramp up your self-mill and allow Moldrotha to do the work for you rather than having to draw these specific cards. That's going to help you a lot. And, Corey, you have Graveyard Deck. You're very good with it. What are some cards that he should look at? So, one of the mechanics for Graveyard Decks that is very powerful is Dredge. And Dredge reads... If you would draw a card, instead you may put exactly blank cards from the top of your library into your graveyard. If you ret do return this card from your graveyard to your hand, otherwise draw a card. And so all of these dredge cards have dredge and a number. So for instance, Dakmore Salvage is a land, comes in tapped, it adds a swamp, and it has dredge two. So if it is in your graveyard, then you can 
on your draw step, put the top two cards of your library, since it says dredge two, into your graveyard, and then draw this land. You can, If you have dredge cards in your library and ways to keep them in there, you can potentially just keep dredging and putting more and more cards into your graveyard or into your graveyard from your library. Another powerful dredge card is Life from the Loam. This card is very powerful. Having played with it in modern and, you know, back in the day when it was first printed for standard, this card is incredibly powerful. So Life from the Loam, it's one in a green. It's a sorcery. Return up to three target land cards from your graveyard to your hand and dredge three. So it gets you all the lands, all your fetches that you already sacrificed to get all your other lands back in your hand so you can keep fetching. It gets your Evolving Wilds. It gets anything that you've sacked, all your Wastelands, your anything that might have been blown up. It gets those back in your hand. And it also gets you whatever you've milled in there yourself. Yeah, if you need color fixing or utility lands, it just pops them right back in there. But the important thing is that Dredge 3 is right on there. So even if you don't even care about getting the lands back, because because it says up to three target lands, the fact that you can put three cards in your graveyard every turn is very, very powerful, in addition to all of the other self-milling that you're going to be doing. You're just fueling your graveyard every single turn for a very, very low two mana. Yeah. At the very minimum, you're going to have at least one land in your hand if you bring it back that you can play for land for turn. And if not, then you put three more cards in your graveyard and, when and you're have running, a spell to play. And when you're running 35 to 40 lands in your deck, there's a good chance that on any given turn you're going to hit a land. Another banger for self-mill is the one and only Hermit Druid. So Hermit Druid is a very, very hated card for many reasons. It's a combo card in most <laughs> decks. Usually if you put Hermit Druid in deck, you're trying to win with Hermit Druid. So Hermit Druid is one in a green for a 1-1 Humid Druid. You can pay a green and tap it. Reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a basic land card. Put that card into your hand and all other cards revealed this way into your graveyard. So usually you're trying to mill yourself out or draw your one basic land and put everything or as many cards as you can into your graveyard. And in Commander specifically this deck, even if you just put a couple cards into your graveyard, for one mana, you can do that every turn. It adds up after a while, and you get a land. And this also can be done at instant speed. Yes. So if you need to find an effect that you're able to pull out for whatever reason, do it at somebody's end step right before your turn, and you have access to it on your turn. It's a very good effect, and the fact that it's repeatable is just so powerful. Too good. Uh, one last card you can look at is Nyx Weaver. It's one, a black, and a green. For a 2-3 enchantment creature spider with reach, at the beginning of your upkeep, put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard, so that helps with the self-mill. And then you can pay one, a green, and a black, and exile it, and return target card from your graveyard to your hand. So that's another instance of sorcery or of graveyard recursion and saving, protecting your deck against grave hate. So a card like this fills a lot of slots. It's a creature which means you can keep playing it with Moldrotha. It's also an enchantment, so you can keep playing it with Moldrotha. You can hit, fill the enchantment slot or the Either creature or, slot yeah. on your turn. It self-mills, it blocks most things, and it has it protects against grave hate, and it's very, very low CMC. Yeah, so Nick's Weaver is very flexible in the fact that Moldrotha helps you with it if you need to bring it back for whatever reason. Same with Hermit Druid. So those are kind of the two that I would look at. As far as just like overall power level... Hermit Druid, Life from the Loam, they're always going to be good. 
You don't have a lot of basics in this deck, which means you're probably going to be able to mill a fair chunk of your deck when you use Hermit Druid. Uh, the problem is that both these cards can be fairly pricey. Hermit Druid, I think, is relatively low now compared to what it used to be, but Life in the Loam is still you know, a $20 card. So this is sort of the building process that you have to go through, whether you have friends who are a little better at building like me and you can kind of bounce ideas off, or if you just have to be really good about self-evaluating those cards in your own mind, you have to go through and say, okay, there's seven slots. I've got 15 really good cards. What really has to go into those slots to make this the most efficient, effective deck? So with the 93 cards that I have now, 93 including Muldrotha as my commander, um, it's looking pretty good as far as the overall deck list so far. Um, my converter man cost is right at 3.8, which is a little high. It's a little higher than I generally have for, in my decks. Yeah. But I also like to have my decks as low to the ground as possible just because I tend to like being super aggressive with my decks just so I can play, you know, three cards, you know, by turn like seven. Right. And this deck is sort of leaning on a couple big fatties in the deck and it's sort of leaning on the recursion and the idea that the long game is really where this deck is going to thrive. So in order to get to that point, we got to have ramp, right? We got to get there. And the best way to do that is to have good recurrable, in this case, ram. So on our list here that you have, we've got Soccer Tribe Builder, Burnished Heart, Command Shua. Corey, tell me about Scuba Steve. So Scuba Steve, he's a one and a green for a, a shaman. I don't know those other creature types. Snake, right? He might be a snake. Um, but you can sacrifice him at instant speed to go search for a basic land and put it into play tapped. Yeah, so Soccer Tribe Elder is a very similar card to what Rampant Growth is, except it's a creature, which means you can recur him with Muldrotha. Rampant Growth you play once in this deck. Soccer Tribe Elder you can play every turn if you have Muldrotha out. Um, we've also got Burnished Heart on the list, which... Garen, you cut at some point in time and brought it back in. Surface level, that card is a little bit hard to evaluate as far as you just look at it. And if you're not in game, especially with Muldrotha at the helm right then, you look at it and you go 2-2 two, two for... 3 mana for a 2-2 two, two elk artifact creature. Pay 3 mana, sacrifice it, and search your life for up to 2 basic land cards, put them on the battlefield tap, then shelf your library. So with Burnished Heart, you... Basically pay six mana for two lands that come in tapped, which is not great. But when you look at it as an artifact creature, which means the Muldrotha can bring it back as a creature, or as your artifact for turn, you're going to get massive value off of this card. Plus just the idea, there are some games when you truly need someone out there to block, and it's not just a ramp spell, it's also that as well. You have that extra utility of being a creature, um, and you don't worry about it being a chump blocker because then it goes to the graveyard and you get it back. Uh, so it enters that loop where it becomes exponentially better after you played it a few times and recurred it. That's yeah, quality. and just like Soccer Tribe Elder, because you can sacrifice at instant speed, although this one's at three mana, it's very, very powerful. Yeah, and the last one is Commander Sphere, which is a three mana mana rock. Um, it's an artifact, of course, has tap at one mana of any color in your commander's identity. So, for Muldrotha, that means you can add black, you can add green, you can add blue. Uh, it's got another line of text here, and this is kind of the, the more important one, I think, on this, and that is that you can sacrifice it to draw a card. So, if you don't have any other artifact in your graveyard, you can sacrifice it to draw a card, and then you're able to recur it again. This is one of those cards that fits both of our slots. It starts to overlap to where you can count this as both card draw and ramp. Yes, and this is kind of the card that you really want to look at 
when you're building a deck because it can be so flexible. It can be the card that you need at the moment, uh, but it also helps you get the late game to help you bring in those fatties. One thing that we need to work on for this deck is, in fact, card draw. And I think the one card you have right now is greater good. That is hard card draw. And so we need to add more of that. So we're looking at things like Moldrifter. So Moldrifter is four and a blue. It is a elemental creature, of course. And when Moldrifter enters the battlefield, draw two cards. So overall, that's not great. But in this deck, it's fantastic because it also has Evoke for two and blue, which reads, you may cast this spell for its Evoke cost. If you do, it's sacrificed when it enters the battlefield. So this spell basically is just every turn, I get to cast Divination, which reads, two and a blue, draw two cards. And if, for whatever reason, you need to have a flying creature that can block, you can pay five mana for it, and you get exactly that and your two cards. So this card is just going to be insane value in this deck. Another good little three drop is Phyrexian Rager, which, just like Graveborn Muse, it reads, when it enters the battlefield, you draw a card and you lose one life. So pay one life, draw a card, always a powerful mechanic. You always want to do that if you can. That's one of the the highlights of black card draw, which you should try and take advantage of. Yeah, and stacking that onto a creature is just going to be great. Yeah, you don't care if it dies. You can always replay it. Now, I've listed in your draw cards, your self-mill, is that you also have a tutor package. This includes demonic tutor. Lucky asshole. <laughs> it's just one in a black. Pull any card from your library into your hand. That's just going to be great. Pattern of Rebirth, which is something that's very good in this deck. Once again, it is an enchantment. It's three and a green, you it's an aura, so you put it on a creature, and when that creature dies, you go tutor for another creature and put it onto the battlefield. Now, that's very important for this deck. And the last one I've got that we should look at here is Entomb. So Entomb, you go and look at any creature in your library, and you put it in your graveyard so you have access to it. So something like that is going to be huge in a deck like this, where if you are able to get that card, you say, I want the best creature in my library, put it in the graveyard, it's just like a tutor for you. It's going to be a little more expensive, as far as just getting that creature in and then also casting it. But once it's in there, you're always going to have access to it unless it gets exiled. So in your tutors, I would like to see one card just to spruce it up. If you're going to put tutors in there, you need to have the creature tutor that you can just bring back time and time again. And that's Sadisi Undead Vizier. Corey, you have a lot of experience playing against this card. So Sadisi Undead Vizier is three black black for four six legendary creature zombie Naga with Death Touch and Exploit. Exploit reads, when this creature enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a creature. This includes Sadissi, so you can sacrifice yourself. And then, when Sadissi Undead Vizier exploits a creature, you may search the library for a card, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. So, in this situation, Sadissi sacks yourself. Granted, it's a five-mana tutor that you can cast every turn, which is fantastic in and of itself. Yeah. But, say you've got a card like Eternal Witness or something that you want to get more value out of. So you sack that creature, bring it back with Moltrotha, bam, you've got more value. Yeah, she's got to make the cut for sure. Yeah, most of the tutors, you cannot repeat like Sidisi. All right, moving on down our list, we've got your removal. We've got Acidic Slime. We've got three green green for Solid. a ooze creature. It has, when it enters the battlefield, you may destroy target artifact, enchantment, or land. The next card we have is Avatar of Woe. So Avatar of Woe is six black black for a creature avatar, and it reads that you can tap and destroy target creature. It also reads that if there are, are 10 or more creatures in all graveyards, Avatar of Woe costs six generic less to cast, which means you can pay two mana for a creature that you can just destroy any creature with. 
And with my self mill going on, there's a good chance there's going to be 10 creatures within all four graveyards. Absolutely. It also happens to be a 6-5, which is not a bad body if you need it. So, Corey, I'm going to throw this next one to you. We've got Butcher of Malakir. So, Butcher of Malakir is a favorite card of mine. It's in my Marin deck. He reads five generic black-black for a 5-4 vampire warrior flying. Whenever... It or another creature you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield. Each opponent sacrifices a creature. It's just another Grave Pact or Dictative Erebos, only this one you can attack with, and you can reanimate and entomb it turn one. Yeah, it also cares about itself dying, which means that if for whatever reason you need to sacrifice something or you have a sack outlet that you need to start as removal, then it kind of acts as that as well. It's not targeted removal per se, but it will grind people's boards down. And if people are only relying on their commander to have the, their as that as their creature out on the battlefield, then it can just wipe them out of the game. All right. To continue the discussion here, we've got your board wipes. You've got Kedrick Leviathan in the deck. It is a creature. It does bounce all other creatures. So that's kind of going to be strong for you if you need to swing in. But it does bounce Muldroth, which isn't going to be favorable for you. Instead, what I'd like to see is for you to put Cyclonic Rift in the deck, put the best board wipe in the format in. Of course, you got to be able to spend, you know, the 16 bucks for it. If you're running blue, you probably want to run Cyclonic Rift. And Cyclonic Rift is one of those cards that usually when you overload it, you're going to win because it sets you so far ahead and everybody else so far back. Yeah, it's a card that a lot of people hate because it is so insanely strong. But again, that's why it should be in the deck. So another good board wipe you can look at is Bane of Progress. And it's not your typical board wipe because it doesn't destroy creatures. But Bane of Progress is a 2-2 elemental creature for 4 green-green. So 6 for a 2-2. Bane of Progress reads, when it enters the battlefield, destroy all artifacts and enchantments. This includes yours, but you don't care if your stuff dies. So, And then put a plus 1, plus 1 counter on Bane of Progress for each permanent destroyed this way. So you clear everything, you get a big dude, and you don't care if your stuff dies because you just keep replaying it. So as the enchantment player of our group, this is not just a bane of progress. This is the bane of my existence. When this card comes down, it destroys my decks. I have to play around it because I know that Corey and Sean have decided to play it. So with your lands, we've got one notable mana producing. You've got a lot of good mana producing lands. You've got you know some shock lands. You've got your temples. Uh, but you've got Crypt of Agadim. So your deck is base black. Most of your creatures have black. In addition to their other colors, if they're not mono black, this card's a pretty solid add. As far as your utility lands, you've got Alchemist Refuge, which is a pretty cool land. So on its own, it taps to add waste, but you can tap it, a blue and a green, to give all of your spells this turn. You can cast them as though they had flash. So that's an insanely powerful ability for effectively three mana because you are tapping Alchemist Refuge for it. I mean, that's something that can't be understated. All of your spells are basically permanents that you're trying to do. You do have some incredibly strong sorceries that we're looking at and to give them flash i mean you just act on someone else's turn you're good to go so another utility land you have here is guy of the reach sanitarium which i really enjoy this card it's a legendary land you can tap it to add waste to your mana pool but you can also tap two and it and each player draws a card then discards card so you're fueling your graveyard you're drawing cards you're also putting stuff in your opponent's graveyards this card is just all upside for you yeah you're looking for answers and putting something that you can always just play later right into your graveyard the last utility land we have here is Grim Backwoods. Taps for a waste, as these others have, but also has two black, green, and tap. Sacrifice creature, draw a card. So this kind of desperation mode, but 
when it's good, it's great. And when it's not, at least it'll tap for a colorless. All right, so that's just the summary of what is in the deck as far as the normal breakdown that we have. We also want to look at cards that you have that are on theme cards. We've got your self-mill, we've got recursion reanimation, we've got your regrowth effects, and then we have what I have just labeled as just Moldrotha-like effects. And what I mean by that is just the things that you don't have to necessarily pay or that are on every turn, you'll just get that for free. So for self-mill, your all-star of the deck, the card that you love the most, you've got Deadbridge Chant. It's a real good card. Deadbridge Chant reads, four colorless, a black and a green for an enchantment, and when Deadbridge Chant enters the battlefield, you put the top 10 cards of your library into your graveyard. So you mill 10 right away. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, you choose a card at random from your graveyard. If it's a creature card, you put it onto the battlefield. Otherwise, you put it in your hand. So you get that self-mill right away. Then you treat it either as card draw, sort of, in a roundabout way, or recursion and mana cheating, which I'm a huge fan of. Which are all things that your deck is trying to do. Yeah, on it's one like card. everything that I want wrapped up into one big Golgari beauty. I did call it an all-star. The next one you've got here is Grizzly Salvage. So you can pay a black and a green for an instant. Reveal the top five cards of your library. You may put a creature or land card among them into your hand. Put the rest in your graveyard. So in this deck, again, you don't really care if things go to your graveyard. You kind of prefer them to be there because then you have easy access to them. So this card is draw a card, put four cards into your bin. Yeah, and I like the fact that it gives you the ability to save a land if you were in a situation where you really needed to and you grabbed a land. You don't have to toss it into the bin and wait to play it once you get Moldroth out. Yeah, absolutely. That card selection is very good in this. Well, once we get things into the bin, we kind of need to get them out of again. You can't always hope for just Moldrotha. So, of course, you got to have my favorite, Animate Dead. Uh, but I've also got in here a couple other recursion cards that are pretty potent in this deck. The first one is Journey to Eternity. It's a legendary enchantment aura for one and a Golgari. One in Golgari, so one black-green. Uh, you enchant a creature you control. When enchanted creature dies, return it to the battlefield under your control, then return Journey to Eternity to the battlefield transformed under your control. Right, and that transforms into Atzel Cave of Eternity. It's a legendary land. You can tap and add one mana of any color to your mana pool. So get a land that filters whatever you need. Actually works. And then you also have the ability three, black, green, tap it, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. So effectively, six mana, bring any creature card back. At instant speed. So you this can do this on a, anybody else's turn, during somebody's end step, if you need a blocker. Just hold up this mana. And if you don't, then put it into something else. Yeah, and I like even just the front-facing card. I like the ability to... It's not only recursion. It's sort of a threat of protection from that card, saying, yeah, you can kill it, but it's going to come back immediately. So it makes people weigh those decisions a little bit differently. Right, and if they've got enchantment removal and they get rid of it, you can still bring it back with Muldrotha. Right. And you don't lose your creature. And the creature's safe. Yeah. Just like I wanted <laughs> big boy him. that you're protecting... Is still there. The other one we have here is kind of interesting. We've got Hell's Caretaker. So Hell's Caretaker is a 1-1 horror creature for 3 and a black. It has tap it, sack a creature, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield, activate this ability only during your upkeep. So while this is a little slow, this card kind of reminds me of Sidisi in the sense that you can replay this card as the card that you want for your turn from Uldrotha. And then during your next upkeep, you bring back something else. So you pay less mana for something that you're going to bring back that's bigger. So it's very kind of 
upcycling of your creatures. Now, we tried this recursion reanimate theme, and we've got quite a bit of potent cards, but there's also a couple cards that sort of fit into the regrowth category. We're bringing from the graveyard to the hand, which is a little slower, but these regrowth cards that we have in here are important because they're not just creatures. Right, so the reason why we call them regrowth is because regrowth is a card that is one in the green, it's a sorcerer, return target card from your graveyard hand. So that's any card. So that's the, the theme of these cards is that they can get cards that aren't just creatures. So the first one is the All-Star, of course, from this category is Eternal Witness. We talked about it before. It's one green green for creature human shaman. It's a 2-1. When it enters the battlefield, you may return target card from your graveyard to your hand. This card's an All-Star in this deck. It's just always going to get value. This is one of those cards where if you're running green, you probably want to run Eternal Witness just for the value. Yeah, there's a reason why cards like this are so powerful, and that's that we're playing a singleton format here, and anytime you can play a card more than once, you're going to get insane value off of it. So the next one we have here is Golgari Fine Broker. It's black, black, green, green, and it's an elf shaman. It's a 3-4. And whenever Golgari Fine Broker enters the battlefield, return target permanent card from your graveyard to your hand. So this is Eternal Witness for permanent cards, but it leaves behind a bigger body here. So your deck is mostly filled with permanents. So this card is going to find value, but it can also get these land cards, which is sometimes very important for a deck like this that's milling off a bunch of their cards. The last one we have here that is notable is Reviving Melody. It's two and a green for sorcery. You can choose one or both. Return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand and or return target enchantment card from your graveyard to your hand. So the reason why I've got this one on the list here is because you're able to get two regrowth effects for one card. Next section we have is the Moldrotha-like effects. As you said, you don't always have access to Moldrotha. Sometimes she gets removed. So you need a way to get bonus value without paying a ton of mana for it. So the first one, I'm going to throw to Corey because this is his girl. She's the girl. This is my baby girl, Marion of Clan Neltoth. So this is the first deck I made, and this is probably still my best deck. Marion of Clan Neltoth reads a two black and a green for a three, four legendary creature, Human Shaman. Whenever another creature you control dies, you get an experience counter. Experience counters are counters that go on the player, and they just basically sit next to you, and they're very difficult to interact with. But so they're not tied to that creature. They're not tied to any permanent. They're just tied to the player. Right. And at the beginning of your end step, choose target creature card in your graveyard. If that card's converted mana cost is less than or equal to the number of counters, experience counters you have, return it to the battlefield. Otherwise, put it into your hand. So you get free reanimate or you get free regrowth every turn. Yes. She's really good. The next we have that's kind of similar in that vein is Shieldred. The Whispering One. She's probably my favorite card. I think that I would agree that that's definitely your favorite card. Oh, good God. I would play her in any black deck ever. She I think she's a, good in basically every black deck ever. She's one of those ever. cards. She's a little expensive, so Shieldred costs five generic and two black. So seven total mana for a 6-6 six, six legendary creature, Praetor. She's got Swamp Walk, um, but at the beginning of your upkeep, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield for free. And at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, that player sacrifices a creature. So she has free recursion, which is huge. I'd play her just for that. But she's also got that sort of pseudo board wipe at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep. They have to sacrifice a creature. Now they get the choice, but it's still powerful. Yeah, this card after a couple turns is backbreaking unless you're just going massively wide. Like Generally in Commander, there's only a few creatures going to be out on the board. So anytime Shieldred hits, 
you kind of look at everyone and say, okay, does anyone have an answer to this now? Because we need to get rid of her before my upkeep, your upkeep, whatever. She's an emergency card. Yeah, she when she gets played, she is the target. Yeah, Everyone pulls all their resources to get rid of her because she's just so oppressive sometimes. Now, there's a couple other cards in the deck that I specifically put in there just because they're just badass. They're just really good, juicy cards. <laughs> yeah, so these cards are just insane value, and you'll be able to just continually get value off of them. The last one, especially so. But the first one we have is Elvish Piper. So Elvish Piper is three and a green for a 1-1 Elf Shaman. A little underwhelming, but she has <laughs> tap green and herself, and we put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield. Another card we have here that doesn't necessarily need that much support, but since you're going to be milling everything in your deck anyways, doesn't hurt to have. So Gerard Golgari Lichlord is black, black, green, green, so some hard Golgari mana for a legendary creature, zombie elf, 2-2. Two, two. He gets plus one, plus one for each creature card in your graveyard, so you want a big graveyard whenever you play him. And But the most important thing is his activated ability... One of his activated abilities, which is one black green, sacrifice another creature. Each opponent loses life equal to the sacrifice creature's power. Now, in this deck, you don't always want to be sacrificing creatures, but sometimes it's hard to close out a game. That could be and a finisher. Gerard yeah. is a great finisher in these sorts of decks. Yeah, and you're running giant dudes like Consuming Aberration and Lord of Extinction. So if you swing at one person and then just sack it to finish everybody off, that's a really good win con. I don't know how many times I've sacrificed Emrakul to finish people off. <laughs> and it, the, the thing is, it's each opponent. So in four-player games, it's really, really good. Yeah. The thing is, is that you look at Moldrotha, and while she's fantastic, she can also just be six damage. And sometimes you only need five. Yeah, if you can just do six damage to everybody, you can win. And then Gerard also has a last activated ability, which is sacrifice a swamp and a forest. Return Gerard from your graveyard to your hand. So while this is kind of taxing on your mana base, obviously, with Moltrotha, you can bring these lands back. It's not as bad as what it could be in some other decks. And if you just have your board set up and you just need to get through with some damage, just sack some creatures and get them back, play them, and, and sack everything else that you have, and you can just win the game right then and there. We've got two more cards here. Gary, tell us about Liliana Vess. So Liliana Vess is the only Planeswalker in the deck. And she's three colorless and two black mana. Uh, it says her plus one is target player discards a card. Her negative two is search your library for a card, then shuffle your library and put that card on top of it. So it's a tutor to the top of your library. Which a lot of tutors can do that, yeah. Not the worst. But her ultimate, negative eight, pull all creatures from all graveyards onto the battlefield under your control. So that's one huge. of the cards we talked about was Rise of the Dark Realms. This is Rise of the Dark Realms as her ultimate. So one of the reasons why she's so notable here, the target player discards a card. Sometimes that's actually you. I've seen where players target themselves with it just to get something in the bin that they can pull back out with Reanimator or you know some other something strategy. Than just than animate it. dead, yeah. 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 Um, the search for library for a card. I mean, just potentially she has two tutors on her for five mana. That's pretty damn good. And then her ult is just win the it's, game. It's one of those win the game. So you can never get there. Because she is a Planeswalker, you can replay her with Moldrotha if she gets attacked. Last but not least, the last card we're going to talk about today, the best card in this deck. Corey, tell me about the best card in this deck. Well, folks, the best card in this deck is... Moldrotha the Grave Marion of Clan Neltoth. <laughs> My baby girl. All right. 
Get out of here. The real best card in this deck is Vidalkan Ori. It's a four-man artifact that reads, you may cast spells as though they had flash. Most of this deck is going to be sorcery speed stuff. We're talking about creatures, enchantments, artifacts. They're sorceries. more powerful, so they were put as a sorcery instead of an instant, and now we can play them as instants. Now you can break every card that you have. So obviously Vidalkan Ori is a pretty strong card. If you can include it, you probably should include it in most, most decks. Um, but honestly, this journey that I took with this deck was one of my first EDH deck builds. So I, from the very first card to the very last card, I've included every single one based on what I wanted and suggestions from friends of what would work with synergy-wise. Uh, it's always good to follow some of these rules about deck building, but it's also still up to your creativity and also your experience in playtesting it. It can always kind of shift and change, you know? Yeah, each deck that you make, it's your deck and yours alone. And so you can add as much flavor. You can add your favorite cards. You can not listen to anybody's rules. You can do whatever you want. And that's that's the, my favorite part about deck building. That's why it's so fun. As always, as we come to a close here, don't drink and drive. Don't drink if you're underage. We want you guys to be safe out there. We want you guys to play what you want to play. If you don't like a certain rules or stipulation, then go without it. Try it out. Let us know what you guys have been drinking, what you guys have been brewing as far as decks go. Yeah, especially since this was a deck building episode, like, send us your decks. Especially yeah, if it's really Muldrotha. flavorful. Yeah. yeah. If you have a Muldrotha, Muldrotha, if you have a Mimeoplasm that actually works, that you didn't Absolutely. take apart to make a Muldrotha deck, <laughs> yeah. I want to see that. Send me your Marin decks. Uh, so you can follow us at UUD Podcast on Twitter. Uh, we also have our YouTube channel, Untap Up Keep Drink. Have fun. But not too much. Yeah.